May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The first Christians understood that they lived in a world where contested loyalties were viewed with some suspicion. The disciples, of course, saw their teacher tried and condemned and executed by the authorities of the Roman government and were themselves pursued almost to the ends of the earth by other kinds of Romans. Christians were seen as threats to good social order because of their commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And despite their experience and despite the risks, Christians were pretty comfortable being rabble-rousers. We know this, of course, because we found some of the letters that went back and forth between Roman government officials trying to figure out what to do about the Christians, who, like Jesus, were a bit of a puzzle to them. Guilty of no actual crimes, but still a little bit of a burr in the saddle. The Romans found it difficult to deal with these believers because anybody could be a follower of Jesus. The faith took root in communities that defied easy definition. The church was made up of all kinds of people. There were the prosperous as well as the enslaved and could not easily be confined to one race or one region. And furthermore, believers were convinced that they were actually accountable not to Caesar or to the local government or their family or tribe or employer, but only to their crucified and resurrected God. And in many cases, Christians were quite willing to give up their livelihoods and even their lives for the sake of fidelity to this God who they believed had been raised from the dead. It was a source of much imperial frustration. How can you hope to control people who think that their God is going to raise them from the dead? So down the centuries, the followers of Jesus have tried to hold on to this commitment to follow the Lord above all others with varying degrees of success. The difference that following Jesus made in the first century made Christians stand out from their neighbors in a brutal, selfish society. But in our own day, the choice to worship one God or another or many gods or even no God at all has been relegated to the realm of the personal and the private. We think that faith is a little bit like underwear, something that may be important to us as individuals, but probably best kept out of sight. (laughs) Such things do not come up in polite company. Now that is actually quite a useful fiction because it lets us believe that to say Jesus is Lord is just another personal conviction, not an absolute truth. But if we believe truly that Jesus is Lord, he's not just our personal God or Lord of the church, but instead the one who reigns over all things and all people, indeed the whole creation. And it's his reign that is our subject this morning. Paul's letter to the Colossians includes in the first chapter a poem, what we call a Christ hymn, that makes Christ's reign over all things quite explicit. 
It's one of the earliest, and to my mind, still one of the most beautiful descriptions found in Christian theology, presented in this poetic form that Paul either composed himself or must have quoted from quite directly. It's no coincidence that we read the Christ hymn from Colossians 1 on this day because it is the last Sunday of the church year, Christ the King Sunday. This morning, when we exalt Jesus as the one true ruler above all others, I want us to use Paul's words as a lens through which to examine the magnificence of Christ, the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. And as is always the case, we should listen closely because when the New Testament addresses the church, whether in Colossae or in Ephesus or in Corinth, These words are directed to the church here in Kitsap County, just as much as any first century believer. This hymn is part of a prayer that Paul is offering for the Colossian church. He tells his readers to give thanks to the God who has saved them and then gives them a list of reasons why they should be thankful for all the blessings that they have received in Christ. This is just good teaching. He tells you what you're supposed to do. He tells you why you're supposed to do it. Then he tells you to do it again. Parents and grandparents, I suspect, probably have this experience with fussy children, having to remind them that whatever they might feel in any given moment, they're not actually starving. The reality of their circumstances may not be quite as awful as they might think. The Colossian church experienced persecution and hostility, but there were still incredible, abundant blessings to be grateful for. So starting in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul lays a foundation that ramps up in verse 15, tying the ongoing life of the church into the reality of the new era that has been inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church is qualified, he says, to share in the inheritance of the saints and has been delivered from darkness into the light of Christ because of the excellence of Jesus. So there are three things that we should note here with a special emphasis. First, it's clear that Paul is making an allusion to the exodus, that dramatic act by which God brought Israel up out of Egypt through the Red Sea and the trials of 40 years of wandering in the desert into the promised land. The deliverance of believers in Jesus from the domain of darkness is like the Exodus. It is a ransoming, a rescue mission that God has completed and that the church benefits from. As a result of this rescue, a whole new era has begun, defined by the reign of God, the freedom that Christ offers, and the forgiveness of sins. And just like the children of Israel in the desert, the church is made up of people in need of rescue who are unable to save themselves without divine intervention. And just like Israel, the life of the church is only possible because God remains engaged and active, always working for the good of those he loves. Remember the Israelites in the desert are starving and are thirsty And God alone provides food and water and direction for them. In the same way, God feeds the church and God guides us. Secondly, this passage leans heavily on a characteristic of Paul's theology, this concept of what is already, but also not yet. It's another one of those things that parents are sort of familiar with, I imagine. It's the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. There is a tension that we hold in the Christian life. 
We believe that by the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we have been redeemed from our sins and a new world has been made possible. But we also await with anticipation the final consummation of Christ's work at his second coming. So you and I live in this in-between time between what is already and what is not yet. When I was a child, I used to make my mother read to me almost to the point of militancy. Now, most parents say they want their children to grow up and be readers and to love reading, uh, but mine inadvertently raised a literary dictator who could not get enough books. Uh, Perhaps uniquely, I actually didn't mind hearing the same story more than once if mom was going to read it. And by the time I was old enough to read to myself, they were constantly having to break into my room and steal flashlights from under the covers so that I would go to sleep. I just liked reading that much. And so in my adult life, I find myself going back to old favorites again and again, fully aware of everything that happens and knowing how the story ends, but enjoying it as much, if not more, than the first time. As Christians, we live that experience ourselves. We believe that at the end of all things, Christ will return to bring the world to perfect completion. And we trust that by faith, that return will be a source of great and abundant joy for the whole world. But there are still some twists and turns in the path along the way. Redemption has already been accomplished, but still needs to be fully applied. Finally, the application of that redemption will be concrete, not just theoretical, in the form of the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is a key element of the reign of God. In biblical terms, we often think of redemption as deliverance from hostile enemies and forgiveness as applying to righting the wrongs that we have done either willfully or out of ignorance. So we set up redemption on one side and forgiveness on the other. But the distinction actually doesn't hold up under much scrutiny because we do need to be delivered from the hostile forces that are opposed to the work of God. And some of those forces exist in our own hearts and minds. We have met the enemy and he is us. Rather than dividing deliverance from forgiveness, Paul sees that where Christ rules by delivering us from our enemies, the forgiveness of sins is also present. So these three elements, the exodus undertones, the theology of the already and the not yet, and the forgiveness of sins, help us to see that when the Christ hymn really cranks up in earnest in verse 15, it is describing the character and reign of Jesus and gives us a Christological description of the reality that we have been saved. Paul wants to make it clear that Jesus was not just a wise teacher or a kind of spiritual guru or just a really good listener, but that he is the image of the invisible God, the one who pre-existed the creation of the world and was there at the beginning of all things and for whom all things were made. This is incarnational theology to the core. Christ is the one who holds everything together and is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead, resurrected as a sign of God's intentions for the whole world. In Christ, God was happy to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth, making peace that was otherwise impossible by the sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross. 
So if Christians are unwilling or unsatisfied with lesser forms of authority or are unimpressed with the pluralistic world around them, here are some pretty good reasons why. Paul is dropping the lines of this poem like hammer falls on an anvil. They're not trite theological fortune cookies, little nuggets to tuck away for a rainy day or cross-stitch onto a pillow. This is that old children's nursery rhyme, he's got the whole world in his hands, reimagined for heavy metal guitar. Because Christ is not one among many. Christ is not just an option that you might want to consider when you get around to it. He is supreme. And all things that are owe their existence to him, to his will to create and sustain them. He holds all the fullness of the one true God within himself. And all thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities are subject to Christ. So go back to the beginning of the passage. For those who are trying to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God by following Jesus, who are working to bear good fruit in the world through their works and be strengthened in power by his glorious might, it's not just a pleasant wish. None of us is writing that on the inside of our Christmas cards. But it is a powerful benediction. So you and I do not follow a God who is just like all the others. Because Jesus is preeminent, not one option among others. Ephesians and the Psalms both describe the reign of Christ as the time when all things will be placed under his feet, when his enemies will become a footstool. Jesus does not share his throne. He makes those who oppose his rule into furniture. Christ is the one true king. There is no other. We can accept no substitutes or alternatives. Now, that's all pretty dense because of the cosmic scale of this Christ hymn. It may be possible for us to let it thunder in one ear and sort of tiptoe out the other, thinking that it's not really all that important for how we live our lives. But the kingship of Jesus takes on deeply practical implications if we start to look at how we live more closely. Because the way that we live reveals exactly what we believe about our Lord. And if we believe that Jesus is the one true king, it should be reflected in how we worship and how we go about our lives. Now, if our hearts are divided, that's not a surprise. There are many different powers that seek to pull us away from this one truth. And yet we know in our inmost being. They are no match for the glorious things that Christ has done for us, no matter what they might be able to claim or how great they might pretend to be. So we have to live, if at all possible, into that truth and not be drawn away. It is our allegiance to Jesus that is the true measure of our faithfulness. And if we believe that he has ransomed us and brought us into his kingdom out of a life of sin and darkness then we have to be willing to give ourselves up for his sake, just as he sacrificed himself for us. So you see, to claim that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, as we often do, is not a personal and private statement, but a revolutionary declaration. Not just in our hearts and minds, but in the broad expanse of history itself. The kingship of Christ relativizes every other power and authority 
and relegates them to their proper secondary status. Jesus is a king like no other, willing to endure the humiliation and suffering that his subjects pour out on him without complaint. And if that's what the king is like, this must be a very strange kingdom. And so it is. The kingdom of God is like no other because our king is like no other. He suffers in solidarity with his subjects. He is even able to bear the scorn of those who claim to love him. And he does this in full belief that his suffering is itself another signpost that points his followers toward the truth. We call this day Christ the King Sunday because we need to be reminded that the one who was nailed to the cross for our benefit reigns eternally, and that nothing and no one can ever be allowed to displace him on the thrones of our hearts. Jesus came into the world, as he himself said, not to bring peace, but to draw out the powers of the world and to defeat them. If we are to be saved from those powers, it's only because he has triumphed over them already and on our behalf has set them under his feet as subjects. So the conflict between the one true Lord and every other pretender is already over and done with. All that remains is for that good news to reach every combatant and for them to lay down their arms and surrender. And ultimately, because Christ is king, his reign will be forever beginning in the life of the church and in the lives of those who follow him. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.